Chapter Six of Herb of Grace. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Eastman. Herb of Grace by Rosa Nuchette Carey. Chapter Six. Yea, verily, and Babs. We will have a swashing and a marshal outside. As you like it. The direct influence of good women is the greatest of all forces under divine grace for making good men. Knox Little. Never had that much loved him, the pilgrims of the night, sounded so flatly and discordantly in Anna's ears as when she listened to Caleb's monotonous croak. But her sense of irritation changed to alarm when Mrs. Marden suddenly shook her fist at the open door and vanished. Malcolm, who promptly followed her, was just in time to see her shaking the cobbler by his coat-collar, much after the fashion of a terrier shaking a rat. "'Are you a born natural?' she screamed. "'Pilgrims of the night, indeed! How pilgrim you, you chuckle-headed idiot! Here are your betters trying to make themselves heard!' Then Caleb slowly unstopped his ears, and rose rather stiffly to his feet. "'You have got no call to be so violent, Kezia,' he returned meekly. "'Oh, it is the gentleman who lent us the umbrella. Kit and I were going to bring it back this afternoon, sir, but I had to finish a job I had in hand.' "'There is no hurry,' returned Malcolm. "'We were in this direction, so I thought I would save you the trouble.' Malcolm looked curiously round the room as he spoke. He was not surprised when he learned afterwards that the second Mrs. Marden objected to the basement. It was certainly a gloomy little place, though scrupulously clean and neat. The sunshine of a July day filtered reluctantly through the small, opaque-looking window. Caleb's bench and tools were placed just underneath it, and above his head a linnet hopped and twittered in a green cage. Kit's perambulator occupied one corner, while Kit herself, seated at the table in a high chair, was busily engaged in ironing out some ragged doll garments with a tiny bent flat iron. Anna regarded her pitifully, the small shrunken figure and sunken chest, and the thin white face with its halo of red curls. But Kit was almost too absorbed with her endeavour to get the creases out of a doll's petticoat to heed her scrutiny. She only paused to nod at Malcolm in a friendly way. "'I wasn't wet one little bit, though ma'am scolded Dad so,' she exclaimed in her high, shrill voice. "'I was like a queen in a big tent, wasn't I, Dad? I was awful comfortable.' "'She might have been drowned dead for all the care he took.' returned Mrs. Martin with a contemptuous sniff, as she planted her arms akimbo in her favorite attitude. Her elbows were so sharp and bony that Anna thought of the Red Queen in Alice in Wonderland. "'If it weren't for me, that blessed lamb would be a corpse every day of her life, though I beg and pray him on my bended knees not to run her into danger.' She was only a coarse-tongued virago, but even Anna, who had shrunk from her, felt a little mollified and touched, as she saw how tenderly the rough hand rested on the child's curls. But Kit pushed it pettishly away. 
Don't, ma'am, you've been and gone and spoiled Jemima's ball dress, and she is going to wear it tonight. And Kit held up a modicum of blue gauze, which certainly did not bear the slightest resemblance to a garment, and regarded it anxiously. Jemima herself, a mere battered hulk of a doll, lay in a grimy chemise, staring with lacklustre eyes at the ceiling. "'I suppose Kit is not able to walk?' asked Anna, looking rather timidly at the formidable Mrs. Martin. But to her surprise, the rugged, forbidding features softened and grew womanly in a moment. "'Law bless you, miss. The poor lamb has never stood on her feet in her life, and never will as long as she lives. The doctors at the hospital yonder say that when she gets older and stronger she will be able to use crutches, but she is as weakly as a baby now, for all she has turned eight. "'Kit's a slight stronger than she was last year,' interposed Caleb, laying down the boots he was cobbling. But ma'am was down on him in a moment. "'You may as well shut your mouth, Caleb, if you have got nothing better to say than that, and if you have not eyes to see the dear lamb is dwindling more and more every day in this cellar of a place. Plenty of fresh air and light, says the doctor, and as much nourishment as you can get her to swallow. And all the winter we have to burn gas or sit in darkness through the live-long day, and the fog choking the breath out of one. It is our misfortune, sir, as Kezia knows, began Caleb feebly, but his pale blue eyes grew watery as he spoke. It is not much of a gnome when one has seen better days, but to my thinking Solomon was in the right when he talked of that dinner of herbs. If Kezia had a contented mind, we should maybe all of us get on better. "'A contented fiddlestick!' exclaimed Mrs. Martin, so angrily that Malcolm thought it wise to make a diversion, especially as a warm, fishy odor in the adjoining kitchen heralded the near arrival of the noontide repast. When he saw more of the Martins, he invariably noticed the smell of fish. It seemed to be their principal diet. Fish broiled or fried or boiled, or even at tea-time shrimps or periwinkles. He saw that Anna found the atmosphere oppressive and determined to beat a hasty retreat. "'Well, we must be going,' he observed. "'Good day, Kit. Now I wonder, if I were to give you a doll, what sort you would like?' Then Kit, who had been frowning fiercely over the ball-dress, looked up at him with astonished blue eyes. "'A real new dolly for me?' she said breathlessly. "'Oh, my, ma'am, do you hear that? Oh, please, may I have a baby that shuts his eyes and that I can love?' "'Oh, yes, I think we can manage that very well, Kit.' You may look for your new baby in a few days. And then Anna kissed the sharp little face, and Mrs. Martin smiled at her quite affably. She'll talk of nothing else from morning to night. Thank you kindly, sir, and you too, young lady. Who is she? whispered Kit, so loudly that both Malcolm and Anna overheard her. Who is that nice lady, Dad, in the white dress? Is she the gentleman's wife? Malcolm laughed in amused fashion as he assisted Anna up the crazy steps, but for once the girl did not respond. "'It was so hot in that room,' she said rather impatiently, putting up her hands to her burning cheeks. "'Oh, Malcolm, what a dreadful woman and what a miserable place!' 
Oh, I don't know, he returned. Mrs. Martin's bark's worse than her bite, and one can see she is fond of the child. We may as well buy that doll, Anna, and then we will have some luncheon. There is a place I know where they do cutlets remarkably well, and their ices are capital. And then they set out in search of a toy shop. The shop where Malcolm proposed they should eat their luncheon had an upper window overhanging Piccadilly. Here they secured a small table to themselves. At first Anna seemed a little thoughtful and abstracted. Kit's innocent suggestion had startled her out of her maidenly unconsciousness. It was such a strange thing to say. It was so terrible that people could think such things, and that Malcolm should only laugh as though he were amused. Somehow that laugh seemed to hurt her more than anything. Malcolm was quite aware of the girl's discomposure. His gentlemanly instincts were never at fault. He knew that many of his mother's friends often hinted that his position with regard to her adopted daughter must be somewhat difficult. At such times he was given to affirm that no tie of blood could be stronger. She is my sister in everything but name, he would say. His influence over her was so great that he charmed her out of her quiet mood, and they were soon laughing and chatting in their old way. They got into a hansom presently, and drove to Cheney Walk. As they passed Cheney Row, and looked up at the grim old figure of the sage of Chelsea, looking so grey and weather-beaten, Malcolm proposed that they should make a pilgrimage to number five, but Anna refused. "'We have been there three times,' she objected, "'and I do so dislike that dismal, dreary old house. I don't wonder that bright, clever Mrs. Carlyle was moped to death there.' "'Hush, you little heretic!' returned Malcolm good-humouredly. To me, number five Cheney Row is a shrine of suffering, struggling genius. When I stand in that bare, soundproof room and think of the work done there by that tormented, dyspeptic man with such infinite labor, with sweat of brow and anguish of heart, I feel as though I must bear my head even to his majestic memory. Malcolm had mounted his favorite hobby horse, but Anna listened to him rebelliously. They had been over this ground before, and she had always taken Mrs. Carlyle's part. "'Think of a handsome, brilliant little creature like Jane Welsh,' she would say indignantly, "'thrown away on a learned, heavy peasant, as rugged and ungainly as that hill of the hawk, that crayon puttock, where he buried her alive. Oh, no wonder she became an erotic invalid, shut up from week's end to week's end, with a dyspeptic, irritable scholar in an old dressing-gown. Indeed, it must be owned, in spite of all Malcolm's eloquence, Anna was singularly perverse on this subject, and absolutely refused to burn incense to his hero. As Anna must have her way on her birthday, Malcolm said no more and the next moment they arrived at their destination, a grey, dingy-looking old house, somewhat high and narrow, overlooking the river. The first-floor windows opened on a balcony, which had an awning over it. Two or three deck-chairs had been placed there, and on summer evenings Malcolm loved to sit there, 
either alone or with a congenial spirit, enjoying the refreshing breezes from the river. The house belonged to his friend Amias Keston, and some years before he had built himself a studio in the back garden. As his income was remarkably small, and his work at that time far from remunerative, he was obliged to let the upper floor. The situation charmed Malcolm, and the society of his old friend was a strong inducement, so they soon came to terms. Malcolm was an ideal lodger. He gave little trouble beyond having his bath filled and his boots well polished. He breakfasted in his own apartment, but he always dined with the Kestons. A solitary chop eaten in solitude was not to his taste, and he much preferred sharing his friends' homely meals. "'Plain living and high thinking suit me down to the ground,' he would say. "'A laugh helps digestion.' But in spite of his philosophic theories, many secret dainties found their way into the Keston larder, and were regarded doubtfully and with awe by an anxious young housekeeper. Anna felt a quickening of excitement as they walked up the flagged path. She could not look indifferently at the house where Malcolm lived. It seemed an age to both of them before the door was opened. Malcolm had knocked twice and was meditating a third assault when they heard footsteps, and the next moment a little brown girl appeared on the threshold with a child in her arms. "'I am so sorry, Mr. Herrick, but Hepsy has just gone for the milk,' she whispered to Malcolm, who did not seem a bit surprised by the intelligence. He had grown used to these domestic episodes. The milkman was generally late, and Hepsy, otherwise Hepzibah, was forever on his track, with a yellow jug in her hand. They called it the hunting of the snark, for they were wont to treat the minor accidents of life in a playful fashion. "'Anna, this is Mrs. Keston,' observed Malcolm, "'my friend Verity and Babs.' Then Anna, in some confusion and much astonishment, shook hands with this very singular young person. "'Verity! Could this be the Verity that Malcolm had eulogized with such enthusiasm, this little brown girl who was regarding her so gravely and fixedly?' Anna was obliged to own afterwards that her appearance had given her a shock. She was so small and sallow and insignificant, and her short curly hair was parted on one side like a boy, and cropped quite closely behind. The baby was small and brown too, a tiny addition of herself, and they both had dark eyes that looked preternaturally solemn. Babs, indeed, wore an injured expression, and a puckered look of anguish spoke of the pangs of hunger and the delinquencies of milkmen. "'Babs wants her tea,' observed Verity cheerfully. "'I am going to give her a crust to amuse her.' Will you bring Miss Sheldon into the studio, Mr. Herrick? Amias will be so pleased to see her, though he is very busy. I know your name, she continued smilingly to Anna. She had a fresh, clear voice that sounded pleasantly on Anna's ear. I have heard so much about you that, of course, I recognized you directly, though Mr. Herrick did not introduce you properly. Verity spoke with so much ease and frankness that Anna began to feel interested in her. She seemed so utterly oblivious of her shabby cotton dress and ridiculous bib apron. 
Babs presented a far more imposing appearance, in a white frock and pink ribbons, underneath which the bare little brown feet were peeping. Anna would willingly have made friends with her, but Verity advised her to wait. "'Babs will not be sociable until she has had her tea,' she remarked. "'We had better take no notice of her for the present.' And indeed that much-enduring and long-suffering infant was at that moment so reduced by famine as to attempt swallowing her own dimpled fist. "'What a capital boy she would make!' thought Anna as she followed Mrs. Keston into the dining-room. For the dark, closely-cropped head and a certain boyish freedom of step and bearing gave her this idea. The dining-room was rather a gloomy apartment. The front windows were high and narrow, and the overhanging balcony rather obscured the light. The folding doors had been taken away, but though this added to the size of the room, there was no additional cheerfulness gained, as the glass door in the inner room, which once had opened into a pleasant garden, now merely led into a covered way to the studio. This sombre apartment was furnished in a curious manner, which made people open their eyes with astonishment, until they found out that Amius Keston had acquired his household goods at second-hand sales. The table of good Spanish mahogany had been a bargain, but it hardly harmonized with a Sheridan cabinet and a light oak sideboard, though both were good of their kind. Then the chairs had been picked up singly, and were of all sizes and patterns. Amius always sat in a grandfather chair of carved dark oak at the bottom of the table, and Verity in a high-backed chair in light oak and red morocco, while others were rosewood, mahogany, or Sheridan. Nothing matched, nothing harmonized. It was merely a curiosity shop in which they stored their purchases. So there were plush curtains and Japanese screens, a bronze mazeppa and an alabaster buoyant butterfly, while blue dragon china and some lovely bits of Chelsea were in a corner cupboard. Anna, who knew there was no other living room, looked faintly round for some feminine occupation, and Verily, who was as sharp as a needle, seemed to guess her thought. "'Oh, I never sit here,' she said confidentially. "'It is too dark. Babs and I prefer the studio.' And Anna did not wonder at this preference. The studio was a delightful room, high and well-proportioned, and with plenty of light. The part used by Amius Keston as his workshop was quite bare, with the exception of the sitter's throne and an easel or two. This could at any time be curtained off to secure privacy. The rest of the studio was fitted up as a sitting-room, with rugs, easy-chairs, and a couch, and a table with work and writing materials. Here, in a retired nook behind an old screen, stood Babs' bassinet, where she took her midday naps. "'This is Verity and Babs' playroom,' explained Malcolm with a patronizing air. "'Here the Martha of the establishment takes her well-earned rest.' Then Verity flashed a sudden look at him, which expressed unmitigated indignation. "'Hit one of your own size, Malcolm, my boy,' observed a voice genially from the distance. And then, as Verity drew back a curtain, Anna saw a big, burly-looking man— with shaggy hair and a fair moustache, painting at an easel. He was so big, so colossal, in fact, that he seemed to shake the floor as he walked. 
everything was big about him, his hands and feet, his voice and his laugh, and when he whispered his words were audible at the other end of the room. This giant among men wore an old brown velvet coat, very frayed about the elbows, and though he was by no means handsome, there was such a pleasant, kindly expression on his face that Anna felt drawn to him at once. "'How do you do, Miss Sheldon?' he said, as Malcolm introduced them. "'My wife and I have long wished to make your acquaintance.' And here his big hand seemed to swallow Anna's up. "'Go on with your painting, Goliath,' interrupted Malcolm. "'He is working against time, Anna, and every daylight hour is of consequence to him. It was Verity who drew that curtain that he might not be disturbed.' and then Amias Keston stretched his huge arms and gave himself a shake. "'The Philistines are upon thee, Samson. Yea, verily, my child, if the snark is back, you had better tell her to bring us some tea.' But here Malcolm again interposed. Goliath was far too busy, they would have tea upstairs, and then sit on the balcony afterwards, and Verity understood him at once. "'Hepsy is back.' she said composedly. Please take Miss Sheldon upstairs, and then Amias will go on with his work, and I will send up tea as soon as possible. But before they were out of the studio, Goliath was back at his easel, and painting away for dear life. End of chapter 6